This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you, can you hear me? You can hear me all right, okay. Let me know if you can't at any point. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and to this event with Jen Ashworth and Peggy Riley. I'm Serena Field, I'm a BBC Arts producer and uh, one of the books we'll be talking about this afternoon, Peggy's book, Amity and Sorrow, is in the running for the first book award uh, sponsored by eBooks by Sainsbury's. Um, Jen's book would have been there too, I'm sure, if it weren't for the fact that it's her third novel. Um, and her book is called The Friday Gospels. I'll just show you them so that you can see them later. Oops. Um, this award is where we as readers get the chance to champion new writing. Um, I hope you'll explore the books on the list yourselves and then vote. You can go to edbookfest.co.uk or the Orange Perspex Cube in the entrance tent and you will find a leaflet just like this. You can fill it in and you have the chance to win all 47 books on the list. That will keep you busy. There will be a book signing after this event, um, but in the next 55 minutes I'm going to ask Jen and Peggy to give us a sense of their books, do a short reading each, uh, we'll have a bit of a discussion on stage and then there will be a chance for you to ask your own questions. And I just first have to ask you um, to turn off all your mobile phones if you haven't already done so. Thank you. Well, the book festival team put together our two writers today because in these books, the Friday Gospels and Amity and Sorrow, they're exploring the nature of faith, growing up with it and crucially living with it. They both consider the messiness of family life and what it means to be family. In the Friday Gospels, Jen's book set in Chorley, we meet a, a family of Mormons, the Leeks, at an important moment. It's Friday and tonight they are about to welcome their son Gary home after spending two years in Utah as a missionary. So Mum Pauline, Dad Martin and brother and sister Julian and Jeannie are caught up with their own intrigues and problems which they hope his return will set right. And we'll find out more about them in just a moment. And in Amity and Sorrow we pick up with Amaranth and her young daughters Amity and Sorrow at a turning point, the moment they flee from the fundamentalist polygamous cult they belong to, Amaranth driving very fast away from a fire, away from Idaho and her two daughters tied together by the wrist in the back seat. So there's much for us to get our teeth into here and let's just welcome Jen Ashworth and Peggy Riley in the traditional way. So let's start with Jen and the Friday Gospels. Jen, briefly, could you give us a better sense of each of your central characters' situation? Let's meet the leaks, introduce us to them. Okay, so are you, can you all hear me okay? If I lean forward, is it better? Yeah. Or is it horrifyingly it loud? Oh, I pick it up. Maybe I'll just lean forward a bit. So there's five characters, um, all members of the Leak family, and each of the characters takes turns narrating the book. So we start off with Jeannie, who's the baby of the family. She's 14 years old. She's been born and brought up a Mormon and doesn't know anything else at all, really. But um, she's at that age where she's starting to question what she's inherited from her parents. Um, she's got a very particular problem on this morning that um, she's recently found out about without giving too much away. And she's desperate for her big brother, who she hero worships, to come home because... Um, she wants him to fix this for her. Um, and then Julian. Julian is the eldest son. He's the one who should have gone on his mission first um, and didn't. 
he left the church um, he's very he's very angry about the way he's been brought up he considers the church to be very damaging very cultish and um, and has, has been really unable to to grow and to cope and to move past that and he's got a plan of his own that day that um, involves um, a very kind of sinister plan he has to take away a friend of the family's little girl um, and then Martin, Martin's the dad, um, he's quite agnostic about the Mormon faith. He's kind of just going along with it to give Pauline, his wife, what she wants. What she wants, she tends to get, and she wants all her family at church, so Martin goes. But over the past two years, while Gary's been on his mission, he's become increasingly sick of living this life to keep Pauline happy. And on this particular day, he is planning to leave. Gary's going to come home and be man of the house. And Martin gets to leave, um, and he has an eye on another woman. Who am I missing out? Um, Gary. So Gary is the middle son. He's the golden boy. He's been on his mission. Um, his mother is absolutely amazingly proud of him. Um, his job is to baptise new people into the church, and she's been bragging about him solidly for two years um, and what she doesn't know and what Gary needs to tell her is that he hasn't baptised anybody at all. Um, I suppose for two reasons. One reason is he's an extremely poor salesman. He has a lot of trouble speaking, he's very shy. Even though he loves the church, um, he's very sincere in his faith, um, he's just not been able to do it. And also because he's been in Utah and everyone there's a, a Mormon anyway, so he's been kind of selling coals in Newcastle. It's not really been working out very well for him. Um, and he needs to come home and tell, tell his mother this. Um, and I think I've already told you a bit about Pauline, so I'll probably stop there. So, yeah, so let's... I thought it'd be good if we just got a sense of, of the book. And, uh, Jen, I think you're going to read from the beginning. I am, I am. Um, well, like I said, each of the chapters are narrated by um, one of the members of the family, and they've all got very different voices. So it's quite hard for me to choose which voice to introduce you to. So I'm just going to read from the very opening pages of the book, and this is... Genie. 5.16am. There it is in square red numbers. Dawn. 14 minutes before getting up time. Mouth tastes like blood and old onions. You can never pinpoint the exact second you wake up, can you? It's not one thing or the other. It's slow, like growing or your dreams wearing off. Is today really the day? At last, eventually. I reach out of bed and slide the switch to turn off the alarm. That's three days in a row I've woken up before it goes off. Why does that happen anyway? Is it like your brain's been trained to it and you really don't need the alarm anymore? There's black stuff, something mouldy and powdery, creeping along the seal between the window frame and the glass. It's actually really disgusting. I lean over and slide the phone out from my pillow. This alarm is set a bit earlier to get me ready for the second one. As I bring it out, it goes off, buzzing in my hand. I freeze for a second, then turn it off. Five, nineteen. Getting light and the first birds tuning up, but if I wake Julian, there'll be hell to pay. And there's still a dint in the wood on my door from that time he threw his mug at me when I forgot and flushed the toilet first thing. It's maybe 10 or 12 or 14 hours until Gary gets back, depending on what the wind and the ash are doing. Ash. It's clogging up the sky, 
keeping the planes on the ground, making people live in airports for days, unable to come home, late and having to eat things like Wendy's and send emails from the terminals in the airport, queuing for an hour or two every time. I am coming home, soon, 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 all he ever says, home soon, Jeannie, can't wait to see you, home soon. I sit up quietly and find Lewis's work number on my phone and press the button to dial. So early. There's no chance he'll be in, apart from maybe a flood or a delivery, a backlog of work for impatient customers, some other emergency that means he won't want to talk to me anyway. I drink him at home or on his mobile, but I don't know the numbers. I listen to the ringing and imagine the phone on the counter, an old-fashioned rattly one with a dirty receiver. I've seen it before. Rings. I don't count. Rings. Rings. He does sometimes sleep at work. Rings. I don't let myself think of him sleeping under that horrible tartan blanket, but the thought and then the smell of it, the feel of the fringe along the edge tickling my shin, and now my stomach is working at itself as if it's frightened, trying to get away. So I press the red button and lie back on the pillows, staring at the ceiling until the sicky feeling goes. Julian is going to kill someone. Me, Lewis, he won't even care who. He could have killed me straight when he chucked that mug and he never even looked around to see what it had hit. Mum was screaming up the stairs and he was off to the workshop without even getting washed and I wish it had hit me and killed me. And that's a fact. I get my journal up from down the side of the bed, find my pen. It's a nice big red book with a hard cover in gold writing on the front of it. Journal. The large white place pages are ruled neatly, all smooth and unspoiled. I flick through the pages I've filled up, the space for the family tree in the front with all our names in it. This is the place to write down all my feelings, all the things that have happened to me. And when I am dead, my posterity will read it and see what sort of life I had. I close it without writing anything. My name is Jeannie, and that is half my problem. Mum says that half your problem is, and then the latest thing. Half my problem is, I think, the washing gets itself done. Half my problem is, I have no idea how long it takes to plan and cook a two-course meal for five. Half my problem is, I think carpet is free and mud disappears on its own. My problem has ten, twenty, fifty halves and is dividing, swelling itself up into thousands. There are no genies in the scriptures, whatever version you look at. Sister William's first name is Ruth, and Brother Fletcher's is James. His mother is Esther. There are Rebecca's and Naomi's and Sarah's with me in the Maya Maids. Even Mum, nearly, because she's a Pauline. All good scriptural names. Gary was supposed to be Nephi, and Julian should have been Enoch, but Dad wouldn't let Mum do it to them, and threatened to leave her over it both times. She brings it up 
every single time he forgets to take the bins out. The night he wouldn't let her have her own way over the new curtains. Curtains. It's the first thing I've put my foot down with you about, Pauline, he said, very quietly. I can't magic money out of thin air. And she erupted. Oh, no, it's not, she went, like a pantomime, but I didn't laugh. Oh, no, it's not. What about the boys' names? What about that, eh? Well, thank you. So, as you've already said, Jen, the story of the day unfolds through the perspective of, of each member of the family in turn. That's right. So, how easy or how hard was it to to get their individual voices in the first place and then to juggle them to unfold the story? Um, it was fairly nightmarish, very hard. Yeah, um, my first two novels are written in the first person and they're both narrated by women who, while neither of them are autobiographical, they're women who are around the same age as me, probably have the same accent as me, um, I've seen the same sort of films I've seen. So those voices were um, a little more familiar to me. And because I'm so interested in first person and, and how it can be stretched and used, when I started planning this novel, I knew that I wanted to give myself a bit of a technical challenge. So I thought five voices and I would make these voices very, very different from me. So I have a 14-year-old girl and I've been one of those and, and hers was probably the easiest. But I had um, met, you know, male voices to write for the first time. And I think... My, my method of, of trying to go about this was to decide very, very early on what each of these characters would not say, what they would not be able to say and why they wouldn't be able to say it. And that felt like chipping away, really, and, and giving the voice a bit of definition. So that's how I started. And the timeline, there was a lot of juggling and it involved um, a piece of wallpaper and lots of post-its and some pacing around and cursing and I shan't be doing it again. <laughs> you mapped it out. I did map it out. And of course as you said the leeks are Mormons yes. and I know that you grew up in that church and without suggesting that your family are at all <laughs> like the leeks. Um, how much here is based on your own experience and, and can you give us a sense of your relationship with the church? Um, yeah, the book is an um, autobiography um, and none of the things that have happened in the book have happened to me or my family, but it is set in a place that I have lived, in a culture that I was very much embedded in until my sort of late, mid to late teens. Um, so research-wise, um, it was, it was, a lot of it was more like remembering than, than having to go to books and do that kind of research on, on the church and its doctrines and the special language that they use. Um, and my relationship to the church is, I'm, I'm no longer a Mormon, um, I haven't attended services since my late teens and I formally resigned my membership for what felt to me ethical reasons um, a few years ago. Um, but certainly Having to write a character like Gary, um, who is very sincere in his faith, um, and he means it, and Mormonism is good for him, it helps him to be bigger and braver than he would have been otherwise, um, as well as having to write a character like Julian, who thinks the church is a very damaging cult, and make both of those stories true and give them both space in the book. And I think, I think having to do that and having to inhabit those perspectives um, certainly enlarged my perspective on the church too so I've no wish or interest in returning but I'm still curious about it. 
So we're going to return to the Friday Gospels uh, very soon, but I want to bring Peggy in here now and uh, her book, Amity and Sorrow. Peggy, can you introduce us to your central trio, Amaranth, uh, and her two young daughters, Amity and Sorrow, as we first meet them? Absolutely. Um, the book begins, uh, as you said, the day a church catches on fire uh, of a religious, fundamentalist, and polygamist community. Um, Amaranth is the first wife of 50 and takes her two daughters away. The problem is um, they raise children communally, so she chooses to save her own two rather than rescuing all the children. So um, right away I'm interested in playing with this idea of family and, and how much is choice and how much is blood. Her uh, two daughters, the youngest is um, Amity, who's 12, and uh, has never seen the world um, outside the church and uh, is fascinated by Doritos and trucks and uh, machinery. And uh, Sorrow, 15, who was the firstborn in the family, uh, the first daughter of the leader of their family and her father, Zachariah. And she is a big part of their rituals. Uh, her position is the oracle, and it's her job to interpret um, the visions that her father has from speaking the Bible. They're a Bibleist community, and he just tells them what he remembers from the Bible, um, often rewriting. So could you read for us now? Sure. I'm going to read just the very beginning, if I may. Two sisters sit side by side in the back seat of an old car, Amity and Sorrow. Their hands are hot and close together. A strip of white fabric loops between them, tying them together, wrist to wrist. Their mother, Amaranth, drives them. The car pushes forward, endlessly forward, but her eyes are always watching in the rearview mirror, scanning the road behind them for cars. Amity watches through her window, glass dotted by chin, nose, forehead, and calls out all she can see to sorrow brown fields and green fields, gas stations and grain elevators. She calls out the empty cross of the power pole. She's watching for the end of the world. Father told them it would come, and surely it will. They will see its signs, even far from him, even here. Sorrow has her head down and her back curled over so she cannot watch. She cups her belly and groans. Carsick, says mother. Homesick, thinks Amity. Their mother is taking them from their home and all they know, and they have no idea how they will ever get her to turn around and take them back. When their mother took them, she ran them from the fire and the screaming down the gravel path to the car, and Amity could see for the first time ever where the gravel path led, how it met a rocky trail, how it plunged through a band of evergreens to join a jostling, potholed road that only smoothed when it came to town, the town she'd heard tell of but never seen for herself. But mother said, heads down, daughters, hide. Amity did as she was told, so she never got to see the street lights or the shop fronts, the dark, quiet streets of evening, or the small families and small houses doing whatever it was that ordinary town families did. She didn't see the metal shutters roll up at the volunteer fire station, or the squat red engines emerge, though she did hear the sirens and see their lights flashing through her shut lids. She didn't see that the engines drove back the way they had come, covering the car's old tracks with their own toothy treads. She didn't see them struggle to get up the rocky trail and the gravel path, or try and fail to put the fire out. 
for there in the car there was only driving and darkness, the watching of their mother, the roads behind them, and the sound of her sister sobbing as home stretched away from them mile after mile. Chapter One, The Red Country. Amity watches what looks like the sun. An orange ball spins high above her on a pole, turning in a hot white sky. It makes her think of home and the temple. It makes her feel it is she who is spinning, turning about in a room filled with women, their arms raised, their skirts belling out like moons. She thinks how the moon will go blood red and the sun turn black at the end of the world. She's watching for it still. Amity. Her mother calls her back to earth, back to the gas station and the heat and the hard baked ground beckoning from beneath the metal canopy that shades the pumps. Did you find anyone? Amity walks back to her, sees that there's dried blood on her mother's face and figures she must have some too, but neither of them can get into the bathroom to wash. The door is locked. I found a man, Amity says. I talked to him. It's okay, I told you to. What did he say? The bathroom door is marked with a stick lady wearing a triangle dress. Locked behind it is her sister. He said it locks from the inside. There is no key. It's a bolt, she turned. Mother slaps the triangle lady with the flat of her hand, calling, Sorrow, you come out of there right now. We're not stopping here. Amity pulls on her sleeve to cover her wrist. It's bareness, the bruise blooming on the bone. All of this is her fault. If she hadn't taken the wrist strap off, her, her sister wouldn't have run. Where did the man go? Mother asks her. Amity points out at the flat of fields where heat and haze make them shimmer like flu. She points to a yellow field, violent yellow, like yolk smeared across the land. You didn't go out there. No, says Amity, shocked. Four days they drove until Mother crashed the car. Four days they drove from home to here. Four days and the seasons have changed around them, the dirty ends of snow from home melting and running to make rivers, mountains flattening to make plain land, then fields. Four days Amity had been tied to her sister to keep her from running. Until the car hit a tree and spun over a stump and Amity took the strap off and Sorrow flew out of the car and ran. The sky is spinning orange when the man comes from his fields. Dirt rides in on his overalls, spills down from his turned up hems, with every step, it scatters like seed. Hey, he calls to Amity, and he raises his hand to wave. Then she sees him see her mother. She sees him take in mother's clogs and long, full skirts, her apron and her cloth cap, as if he hadn't noticed Amity's own. His eyes follow the stripe of blood down mother's face. Hey, he says again, and mother nods to him primly. Closing up now, was there something y'all needed? Mother looks at Amity. Then she points at the bathroom door. My daughter, she says. Is she still in there? He pounds his fist on the door calling, come out of there, hey, what's her name? Sorrow. Sorrow? He squints and bangs harder on the door. Maybe she's unconscious. She's stubborn, how can you not have a key? It's a bolt, Jesus. The man rushes into a little shop and crashes around it to fetch a noisy box of tools. He tries ratchets and hooks, rasps and claws. He hits the door hinges with the chisel, but he can't lift it out of its frame for the bolt. Finally, he takes a sledgehammer to the doorknob. He batters away until he smashes it off, and then there's only a hole in the door. The man tries to stick his hand into it, but it won't fit. You, he says to Amity. Amity creeps toward the door and bends to look in, sure she'll find sorrow staring back at her, or her finger aimed to give Amity's eye a poke. But there's only darkness. 
She slides her hand through the hole, slowly, craning her wrist to find the bolt. I'm sorry, she whispers, and she turns it with a click. And then she's being pulled back out of the way, and the man and her mother are yanking at the door, and it's opening, and only then is Sara revealed, there in the bathroom, there in her awful red glory. The man goes inside to pull her up from the floor, as if he doesn't mind the blood on her tiles, the blood at her hem, the blood on her skirts, or the blood in her hands. He catches hold of the bloody strap hanging from her wrist. Jesus, girl, what you gone and done? Mother screams then, don't touch her, and she rushes into sorrow, clogs slipping on the blood, and she grabs hold of sorrow to push her from the man, and the man grabs her mother, shaking her and shouting, what's wrong with you, woman? What's wrong with you people? And Amity's saying, she's all right, she's all right now, and the man's saying, Jesus, and her mother's saying, don't, and then there's only sorrow rising up from the tiles and coming slowly to her clogs with her palms open, bloody, to quiet them all. Behold, she says, behold. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. Um, you, you, you mentioned a little bit about Zachariah's cult um, and, and a few of the details. Can you tell us whether there is a, a particular cult that you based it on or whether you you made it you made it up for yourself well that's the only way I can make a cult up isn't it so (laughs) I did um, make it up but I I spent a lot of time reading about all the different handmade faiths of America America's has a long tradition from its very beginnings of being a, a great home for religious radicals so I studied from the shakers through to the second Great Spiritual Awakening when the Mormon Church was created, as well as the Seventh-day Adventists. But also, in my childhood, I grew up during a lot of cults um, in California, which has got to be the cult capital of the <laughs> of America now. We've taken over from New York. Um, so I grew up in that decade between uh, Charles Manson and Jonestown in um, Guyana. And I'm really interested by strong... Uh, and they are men, strong men who create these charismatic churches that that always um, fall apart spectacularly. So I wanted to create one for myself. <laughs> and Amity, uh, let's let's talk about her. She, as you said, she's in a way caught between her mother and her older sister. Um, and she, as you said, she never before she's never before left the community. And so you had to write her, I suppose, seeing the world. Through, through fresh eyes and I just wonder about the challenge of that there's a lovely moment where she encounters a television and um, there, there's, a, there's an aerial and she t- t- she has to move the aerial and, and then the snow disappears and the picture the picture appears because she, she has hold of the aerial and, the, and she believes it's you know channeling God down to, to make the picture and when she's learning to read she compares the A to two hands joined in prayer these are beautiful touches so tell us about trying to see the world afresh in that way the challenge of that um, it it was a challenge, so I was trying to find a way to describe things that that you didn't know names for or didn't know their their purpose. So it was a it was kind of how I got into her um, voice. I trained as a playwright. This is my first novel, and it was I think finding the the way to get inside their heads and use voices is very different to drama, which is really democratic. Every every character speaks for themselves, but you're so there isn't really a point of view. Um, so for me, finding Amity's point of view was about the, the ignorance and trying to find her own language to describe um, things she doesn't understand, the, the chemicals in food or um, how, how things work, how th- 
how things plug in their um, pre-electricity in their cult, so she doesn't understand sockets other than as a metaphor for what humans do. So, um, <laughs> anyway. And, I mean, a question to you both. You're, you're both writing flawed and vulnerable characters, thinking of sorrow, thinking of, of Julian. What is the challenge of that in, in terms of trying to keep the reader w with the character and yet, I suppose, th there's the distance there as well, trying to understand them and... I, I, I mean, can you jump in on that, Jen? That um, I don't... I think all my characters in this book are, are flawed and vulnerable. I think Julian's flaws are perhaps a little, a little harder to forgive than uh, everyone else's flaws. Yeah. Um, and I never, perhaps I'm wrong, but I never, as I was writing, thought because these characters are flawed, I have to work extra hard to get a reader to care about them because I hope and assume that uh, a reader, you know, I'm a reader too and I like to read about people that I recognise and are we not all flawed and who would want to read about perfect people anyway? So yes. I, I guess it was, uh, you know, I thought the flaws were the most interesting thing and the, the most real and human thing about them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to um, open the floor for questions uh, when when everyone is ready. Uh, does anybody have a question at, at this point that they would like to put to to either of our authors today? Okay for now. Okay. <laughs> We've got a mic to um, to come to you when, when you're ready for that. I mean the theme in, in both novels um, is parenthood um, and what happens I suppose when faith comes into the mix. Um, the, this idea of parental authority which you mentioned Peggy, I'm thinking of, of Amaranth um, it, it struck me that in the novel, men are some, uh, in some ways seen as, as the answer. You know, it's a problem for Zachariah <laughs> when, when women leave the cult, that, you know, and they, they make a, a bid for self-determination. And, and when Amaranth does that, there's a character that she, that she meets and she sort of latches onto him. Even in her own way, Amity meets a, a boy called Dust and she, she latches onto him too and sorrow pines for her father. Um, this idea that of the dependence on men and that women are swayed by their sort of desires. What are your, your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think, the, you know, the Bible certainly gives examples that, that we're meant to live in these kinds of partnerships. So, um, you know, it, it's not something that I necessarily agree with, but in terms of this, this book that they're um, dealing with, there is Adam and Eve, there, um, there is, but there is the father God and it, it flows down um, from them. And, in um, polygamous societies, the men have much more power because they're the top of the diamond, the top of the pyramid. Um, but the base has all the power. The top is very fragile. And I was interested in that um, dichotomy where the, the preacher at the top, um, all the information flows down from him and, and all the power, but he also leaves to preach and bring back uh, more women. So it's the women who have the the larger relationship, but it's also unstable because they're all looking up rather than um, looking at each other. And I think for the children as well, they're all looking at the figurehead of, of uh, Zachariah and his power as opposed to understanding that they have the power as the, as the life givers and the workers. He's the, the figurehead. Um, Sorrow is a, a very difficult character to like, um, but I was interested in her um, and what happens to ambitious girls and ambitious women in these societies where they're 
they're told what their role is from the patriarch and that their role will be, her role will be to marry and to have children to continue the proliferation of this um, pyramid. But um, Sarah was ambitious for herself and for her faith and uh, she's much more interested in being like her father than, than her mother, which uh, is setting herself up for a lot of, a lot of heartache. So. I'm thinking of another group of women in, in your book, Jen. You've got Pauline, the, the mother of the family, and her, her female friends in the, in the church community. And they can be quite catty, can't mm-hmm. they? And there are lots of... There's a scene uh, where uh, Pauline, I think they're doing the laundry, folding the laundry for her, and she there's sort of little veiled comments and, and uh, little digs and, and so on. And um, I get the sense that you're sort of... Throughout the book, sort of scraping away at this idea of what underpins... The faith—it's a way of life, and it's a way—you know—things are done this way because they—they've always been mm-hmm. um, done this way. Um, and there's a hint that Pauline's faith was triggered in the first place by her, her love for the Osmonds <laughs> as well. Um, is there a slight skepticism on your part then about people, you know, cleaving to a to a faith like that? I suppose I, I was trying to use these five characters in quite different ways, and Pauline's faith. Um, you know, she believes in God, um, and, and her faith is, I think, very small and simple. And actually, what her um, main preoccupation is is the social capital that she's able to claw um, back for herself. Um, that she she doesn't work, and she's ill, and the family doesn't have much money, and all the ways that people normally have to prove that they're good at something or that they're important are, are not available to her. Um, it is my opinion that the Mormon community is a very patriarchal one, and I was interested in how um, how women, clever, powerful women, and Pauline certainly is clever and certainly has a lot of power in her house, how they deal with that. And I guess I wanted to put these women together. I was really interested in what Peggy said about the women all looking at the top, looking at the man instead of each other, mm-hmm. because I think I approached it in a slightly different way in that I wanted to think about the competitiveness between women. And so Pauline's friend is Maggie, and um, Maggie has five sons, and they've all been on missions, so she's much, much better. Um, And the way that these women are kind of constantly measuring themselves with someone else's yardstick and and what that did, Pauline doesn't really have any friendships, and and I wanted to explore the the sadness in that too. Absolutely. Do you want to come in as well, Peggy? Sorry, sorry, I thought you did move. And any questions at this point? Because this is your opportunity to uh, ask our authors what you would like to know. Got a question down here at the front. I, I haven't read any one of the novels yet, but I wondered, is there a sense of the ways in which each of your novels deal with the issue of those characters and those religious traditions interacting with the wider religious tradition to which they belong? So wider Christianity in, the, in that sense. I mean, is there a sense of how these characters relate to that less sort of or more mainstream version of that tradition? I think because my book is narrated over one day and because all the characters are Mormon or LDS, I wanted it to be quite a confined, quite a claustrophobic book. Um, There are two characters who don't narrate, who I wanted to use to, to let in a bit of light and a bit of air and an alternative perspective. So one of those characters is Nina, um, and and this is the the woman that um, Martin is after, really. Um, And she finds, she tries very hard to be respectful, but she finds what Mormonism looks like from the outside quite strange. Um, And then 
within within the faith community I have another character called Ruth and she's very unorthodox um, she believes in evolution and she's got pierced ears and, and you know she might wear trousers to church now and again and so I didn't really have the opportunity to examine and explore how Mormonism fits into the wider Christian communion which is a really really interesting topic but I wanted those two characters there just so that there'd be voices outside this family and so you'd get a sense of um, maybe shades of orthodoxy and, and different points of view going on? Um, I suppose for me I was trying to look at the common denominators of, um, of cults um, but even the word cult is very loaded and who who calls you a cult? No one ever calls themselves a cult. Their faiths, their communities, they're, and for this faith they're, they're a family. They're just making a church of, of family. Um, so I was interested in, in the labeling of it and who decides it's a cult and from within how normal it is and, and from without the, how worried people are by what these girls have been raised to believe. But I was also interested in exploring what, what might work about a cult, not as a marketing tool <laughs> for, a, for joining a cult, but, but what feels good about it, what does work. And the women that join this cult are drawn from um, cities uh, where they've lost their way, they've lost their own families. They're um, in in the style of Jonestown. There are um, older people who no longer have someone to care for them, and they they come to the cult with their goods and their land, and they're told they can belong to a family forever, and they'll be taken care of, and that these women will never be alone if they don't want to be, and that's very powerful to them. But also being told you'll never be alone, you then realize actually can you, can you then leave? So making that contract to be a family, can you also um, get out of it? So thank you. Um, I'll jump in if there's no hand up at the moment. Oh, well then please, no, go ahead. <laughs> just there. I was just going to say whilst the mic's all this um, I'm interested in the fact that you've obviously left Mormon faith and presumably your family is still quite heavily involved and I've been interested to know their opinions of your take on it if mm -hmm. you like um, given you've written all about it despite yes. having left it um, I suppose you'd have to ask them that um, certainly it's not something that I've discussed in any great detail with my family but I think I have in a wider sense I have had responses from active faithful Mormons and those responses have been very varied um, so some of them have been really really pleased because um, often when Mormonism is represented in fiction or genre it's American fundamentalist polygamous Mormonism which you know there are so many stories there it's such an interesting thing to talk about but they want to see British Mormons um, you know who go shopping at, at Tesco's and and who argue and are, are much more much more kind of ordinary so they've been really pleased to see that represented. Um, and other Mormons, um, the book can be, it's quite funny, it's quite satirical at times, and I've had responses where um, some Mormons feel that there's just a line and some things shouldn't be laughed at and shouldn't be satirised. And obviously if I thought that, it wouldn't be possible for me to do my job. So yeah, the um, Association of Mormon Letters um, in America did a feature on my book and, um, and kind of described it as... Um, sort of you know, really, really kind of quintessential Mormon fiction, which from a writer who very hesitates to describe herself as a Mormon is is a, a curious curious label to have. Any other questions? Here again at the front. Thanks. 
In your book, it obviously sounds more gritty because you read about American Mormons in Utah. They seem to have perfect lives and things. Would you say American Mormons are incredibly different to British Mormons? Um, I think I think the the church um and does a very very good job of projecting a kind of wholesome, squeaky clean, white shirts, Mormon tabernacle choir image. Um, and I think everyone who's projecting that image probably has got some skeletons in the closet because everybody always does. Um, as part of the research for this book, I went to Utah and spent a little bit of time there. Um, and I went to church and I, I spoke to missionaries and, and, um, and, and practicing Mormons. And what I found was that my experience of British Mormonism is that it's quite um, quite quite a small community and they emphasise their similarity to each other so conformity is really really important and what I found is that the new movements coming out of Mormonism so uncorrelated Mormons, New Order Mormonism, all these different kinds of spin-off groups um, it's happening in America and they seem much more comfortable with a, a spectrum of orthodoxy and I think the reason for that is probably in Utah, there are lots of Mormons, so they don't all have to be the same. They don't have to emphasise that they're different and special. Whereas if you're a very small group, like you know the, the Mormon community in, in Lancashire, for example, having that identity and emphasising that we're all the same and we're not like you is a little bit more important. So, yeah, they were different, but not in the way that I expected them to be. <laughs> Any other questions? Just second row, please. Um, Peggy, I haven't read your book, um, but I think okay. I, I think I, well, I think I will now. But well, thank I, you. <laughs> so just to pick, make sure I picked you up right, you said Amaranth was the first wife of fifty. Is that right? Absolutely. So I just wondered if it's not a spoiler, if you if you can say, well, how did how did that work? <laughs> how did that cult work with just two people? Presumably, that's how it how it sure. is embryonic. Yeah, I, I suppose it isn't a it isn't a spoiler though. the The book moves forward and backwards from the from the moment of the fire. So the the story moves forward from the fire through these women crashing on this farm in Oklahoma and learning how to live with this farmer, this house full of men with no women there, and it also moves backward from the fire through the history of the of the faith and how it's built. Zechariah is much older than Amaranth. They're very young when she marries and he says to her that he always thought the act of marriage was selfish. He was holding himself above that kind of partnership. There were a number of women there but he hadn't, um, they were there working but they hadn't begun the process of creating um, a physical family um, because also if you're building a cult you need children to keep the ranks going, which is, um, you know, also how polygamous faiths work. You need to create the, the next generations who will carry this on. So um, he, he made a choice that he thinks is selfish, and then uh, it changes the nature of their, of their faith. Um, but also, um, Amaranth isn't a victim in it. She's very complicit in how the women fit into this faith. Um, so I was also interested in their marriage, you know, 20 years down the road, how you've changed and how you make decisions and all of a sudden you, you're down this road and you think, how did I get over there, you know, and crossing a series of lines thinking, I, 
I can just about live with this. I can make, th make this acceptable. And then again, looking back and thinking, none of this is acceptable. How did I get there? So I guess that's, that's the story of her marriage as well in this. So. Any questions just here? How, how, did, um, how, did you, how did you go about your research? And was it difficult to, um, to get information from people? Or was there any sort of secretiveness that you came across? Um, I, I've read a lot of history of, of um, faiths and cults and, and was certainly looking at um, Jonestown and uh, Waco and the Branch Davidians quite a bit. I was trying to look at modern um, polygamous societies, n not looking as much at the early Mormons, though th that is fascinating um, history. Um, but also just trying to imagine how, how would you feel in that situation. So I think I'm just trying to be as human as I can um, with the characters to look at what does work. You know, how does it feel to be part of a big family of, of women if you've always been alone and looking for um, a community? What does it feel like to build a community that's, that's authentic and where people don't come and go? You're all the women are married to each other. They're all, you know, sister wives. They're all in it forever. And then all of a sudden, what happens when you want to leave that family? It isn't, you know, it's hard to leave a cult, but it's very hard to leave a family as well. And it's hard to leave a faith if it's all you know. Um, so it was a lot of reading and then a lot of um, just trying to imagine um, myself. There are odd blogs, and since I wrote the book and as I was finishing the book there were a number of um, polygamous women who started writing blogs about their marriage and the, the, that feel very like big love if any of you have seen that uh, that HBO series um, so I, I think now people are talking more about their experiences but when I first started work, working on this there really wasn't um, access there you know I, I there isn't a, a place I can go to meet these people, but there are still, there are people who, you know, escaped Guyana, uh, children who lived through Waco, so they're, they're able to give bits of information about um, what that felt like. But as I say, I wanted to create my own um, cult and create something that was as positive as, as possible, even though I, I knew it was, I knew it was a disaster, but in telling the story backwards, trying to get to, where all these utopian societies are created in tremendous hope. Uh, you know, you have to have this self-belief that you can make another Eden. I mean, you know, that's the, but, you know, look what happened to Eden. So <laughs> we can't hold Eden together. So, And just to add to, to that as well, I mean, there's a, there's a, <laughs> <Windy. Ooh. laughs> there's a, a, a very troubling thread running through the book, isn't there? There's, you know, you, you're talking about creating a church of family and, uh, talking about, you know, Amaranth believing they were creating a new faith and very hopeful at the start, but within that there was there was, you know, so there's deceit from from Zachariah and and the reason the women are not allowed to go into the fields and there's a particular reason that they're not allowed to do that, which is revealed later on, um, which is nothing to do with the faith their faith yeah. I would say, and also you know his relationship with sorrow as well so that it's I think it's important to say that there is that dark thread running through there isn't there? There's a very dark thread which which does make um, sorrow very um, a very troubled and and very difficult um, 
character. Again, the problem, if you have a, a polygamous faith and you uh, have daughters, daughters uh, will grow up. How, who are these daughters going to marry? Because the only men there are their fathers and their brothers, unless you want to bring more men in. Um, there are, in um, fundamentalist Mormonism, there are, they use means of limiting the amount of young men who are able to grow up within the community. They're um, sent away because they need the pyramid to stay with uh, a majority of women. And the women, girls grow up and then are married to um, men that they may already be related to. Um, they're all very interconnected. So I wanted to look at the relationship between Sorrow and her father and uh, what his plans for her were going to be in terms of um, would she become a wife when, as the oracle, she's interested in becoming, you know, how do I become the father? How do I become the preacher? So, um, but it, it, is, it is very dark because he has um, found different ways of um, communicating faith to her that aren't appropriate. Um, <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, here at the front. If you could just wait till the microphone comes. Thank you. It's a question for Jane, if it's not such a personal question. Could Are you lift you, the microphone? Sorry, no. thank you. Were you happy at school, in high school, given that your faith determined a lot of behaviour in your life? <laughs> um, the way you had to behave, or the way you had to felt you had to behave? No, I absolutely, um, I hated school and I was a huge truant. Um, I used to play truant and go to the library, um, <laughs> which, you know, I probably wasn't doing it right, but... <laughs> um, I don't, I think I probably would have been an unhappy teenager if I hadn't been brought up a Mormon. Um, I think some people are just disposed to it and, and I'm one of those people. But I certainly, as I became um, getting towards... 11, 12, 13, started to realise that how what I was being taught and what I saw in the world were quite different and I definitely felt I didn't have tools that I needed um, and, and yeah, that was very difficult for a while. But, I don't know, most 13 year olds are miserable, aren't they? I, I might have. <laughs> you don't look miserable. <laughs> I, but may, maybe, you know, maybe I, I still would have found an excuse. Any more questions? Well, I wanted to ask, um, and, and please just put your hand up if you if you do want to ask. Uh, we've still got some more time, but as we've said, this is Peggy's uh, debut novel. So I wonder if you could tell us more about that experience of, of writing your your first book and how did it compare to how you thought it would be? And I want Jen, you can chip in here on this one, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I've been a writer for a long time, but not um, fiction. I trained as a playwright and have been working um, here as a playwright. I'm from the States, you can probably hear, but I moved here in... 1995 and then started uh, pursuing that career so I knew the hardest part about being a writer is just sitting down right so I knew how to sit down and I knew how to write physically but I didn't know how fiction worked I didn't know how to get anybody um, in and out of a room in and out of a scene in theater it's lights up and you try to start as close to the action as possible and leave as quickly as possible so my first drafts were like that and people were like wait where are you what's happening what's going on so I, I just had to learn 
really for me to, to slow down and, and place things and look around the room and not write everything for a, a black box where uh, everybody's this distance to a character. Um, so I had to learn point of view, as I mentioned earlier, was, um, was a, a big lesson to me. But, you know, fantastic. I feel really lucky that I can write in a different way. So it's, it's been a marvelous journey. Does that resonate, discipline and uh, structure? Sitting down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I suppose it's very different for me that I wrote my first novel. I started it when I was um, 21, 22, and I'd always written, I'd never written plays, I'd always written prose, short stories. And the thing that was, it shouldn't have been a shock. If I'd have considered it for longer than 30 seconds, um, I would have got the answer, I'm sure. But the thing that was a huge shock to me was how big novels are and and so I would be working really hard on my one sentence and I, I often describe it as being really close to the canvas and, and doing brush, brush strokes and just forgot to realise that I had to step back and look at how all these bits fit together so structuring was really hard and that was something um, my first novel I had to do nine drafts of it and I kept having to rip it up and and rip it apart and crack it open and rebuild it because I was spending all my time on sentences and not anything on, on the, the architecture. Um, I think we've got time. We've got a, about a couple of minutes. Just one more question. So just here, please. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, both. Um, basically, my question was in a literary landscape where actually I've discovered that books about religion and faith I mean, your books aren't only about that, they're about family too, but they've got that focus in them quite uniquely. Um, there isn't actually that much to choose from that I've found that's particularly compelling that isn't either a how-to guide or a kind of scourge on something that someone either grew up with or has always looked at askance or something like that. They, they haven't taken the considered view that both of you have done. What were you hoping that your books were going to bring to the literary landscape in terms of talking about faith and religion? <laughs> um, I try really hard not to hope for anything at all when, when I am writing because that involves imagining a reader and imagining the book being on a bookshelf and if I start letting my thoughts go there um, it's utterly impossible for me to write I have to pretend that it's only ever going to live inside my computer um, but I suppose now I've finished it and now I can look back at it and it's cooled off a bit, I suppose that I would, I would be really happy if um, someone who, who read my book felt that faith was perhaps more complicated um, and, and more dangerous and more beautiful than they had thought of before they read it. That would make me happy. Um, I wanted uh, to capture that feeling of ecstatic worship of um, my, I suppose, my youth and longing for a faith that I, that I didn't find and couldn't attain, but that, that longing for a, a connection with the divine that is all-consuming and, and ecstatic and changes the world. Um, so I wanted to create rituals and try to write in the sense of, of the ecstatic. Um, so I hope it will feel um, passionate that way, but also um, maybe terrifying that sense of being out of control, um, not being of control of yourself because of this attachment to um, looking for um, divinity.
Well, we've come to the end of our time here. Thank you very much for coming along today and for asking such insightful questions. We're now going to uh, install both Peggy and Jen behind a big pile of books in the uh, main bookshop, which is diagonally opposite from this, this venue uh, across the square. Please remember to vote for your choice in the first book award sponsored by eBooks by Sainsbury's and you go to edbookfest.co.uk or the big orange perspex cube in the entrance tent. Um, could you stay in your seats uh, just while we, we go and, and get in position uh, in, in the bookshop and all it remains, all remains, uh, oh I can't even speak, <laughs> all that remains now is for me to ask you to join me in thanking Jen Ashworth and Peggy Riley. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.